Welcome to this reading of the Poem of the Man-God. Thank you for joining me. The Poem of the Man-God is a private revelation of the life of Jesus of Nazareth as recorded by the visionary Maria Valtorta. Now out of print, this five-volume set of books is a narration of the life of Jesus beginning with the birth and childhood of the Virgin Mary through the public ministry of Jesus, his passion and resurrection, and closing with the Assumption into Heaven. The narration is interspersed with direct dictations from Jesus, messages for the whole world. These highly inspired visions were recorded by Maria Valtorta around the time of the Second World War, yet she did not consider herself the author. They were first published without her name, shortly before her death, and only posthumously was her name added. My sole aim with this podcast is to share the poem of the man-god with the world. I hope you'll enjoy them as much as I have, and if you do, please share them. Thank you for listening. Poem of the Man-God, Book 2, Number 183, Jesus at Magdala. He meets with Mary Magdalene the second time. The entire apostolic college is round Jesus, sitting on the grass in the cool shade of a thicket near a stream. They are all eating bread and cheese and drinking the cool, clear water of the stream. Their dusty sandals give to understand that they have walked a long way, and perhaps the disciples wish but to rest on the long, fresh grass. But the tireless walker is not of the same mind. As soon as he deems that the hottest hour is over, he gets up, goes on to the road, and looks. He then turns round and says, Let us go. Nothing else. When they reach a crossroads, where four dusty roads meet, Jesus resolutely takes the one in a northeast direction. Are we going back to Capernaum? asks Peter. No, replies Jesus. Just no. We are going to Tiberias then, Peter insists, who is anxious to know. Not there either. But this road takes one to the Sea of Galilee, and Tiberias and Capernaum are there. And there is also Magdala, says Jesus, with a half-serious expression to satisfy Peter's curiosity. Magdala? Oh! Peter is somewhat scandalized, which makes me think that the town is ill-famed. Yes, to Magdala. Do you consider yourself too honest to enter that town? Peter. Peter. For my sake you will have to enter not towns of pleasure, but real brothels. Christ did not come to save those who are already saved, but those who are lost. And you shall be Peter, or Rock, not Simon, for that purpose. Are you afraid of becoming contaminated? No, not even this one. See, and he points at the very young John, will suffer any harm, because he does not want, as you do not want, as your brother and John's brother do not want, as none of you for the time being wants. As long as one does not want, no harm is done. But one must not want resolutely and perseveringly. You will obtain willpower and perseverance from the Father by praying with sincere intentions. Not all of you will be able to pray thus in future. What are you saying, Judas? Do not be too self-confident. I, who am the Christ, constantly pray to have strength against Satan. Are you better than I am? Pride is the opening through which Satan penetrates. Be vigilant and humble, Judas. Matthew, since you are familiar with this place, tell me, is it better to go to the town this way, or is there another road? 
It depends, Master. If you want to go to the area of Magdala where fishermen and poor people live, this is the road, but I do not think this is the case, but I am telling you to give you a complete answer. If you want to go where the rich people are, then in about one hundred yards you have to leave this road and take another one, because their houses are approximately in this direction, and it is necessary to go back. We will go back, because I want to go to the residential area of the wealthy people. What did you say, Judas? Nothing, Master. It is the second time that you ask me in a very short time, but I have never spoken. Not with your lips, no. But you have spoken, grumbling in your heart. You have grumbled with your guest, your heart. It is not necessary to have an interlocutor in order to speak. We say many words to ourselves, but we must not moan and or calumniate, not even with our own ego. The group proceeds in silence. The main road becomes a town street paved with one handbreadth wide square stones. The houses are more and more splendid and luxurious, surrounded by magnificent flourishing gardens and orchards. I am under the impression that the elegant Magdala was for the Palestinians a kind of place of pleasure, like some towns round our lakes in Lombardy, Stressa, Gordone, Palanza, Bellagio, and so on. Among the rich Palestinians there are many Romans, who must have come from other places, such as Tiberius or Caesarea, possibly officials of the governor or merchants who export to Rome the most beautiful products of the Palestinian colony. Jesus proceeds, sure of himself, as if he knew where to go. He follows the contour of the lake, which reflects the houses and gardens built on its limits. A loud noise of crying people can be heard from a sumptuous house. It is the voices of women and children. The shrill voice of a woman shouts, My son! My son! Jesus turns round and looks at his apostles. Judas steps forward. No, not you, Jesus orders. You, Matthew, go and find out. Matthew goes and comes back. A brawl, master. A man is dying, a Jew. The man who wounded him, a Roman, has run away. His wife, mother, and children have rushed to help him, but he is dying. Let us go. Master, master, it happened in the house of a woman who is not his wife. Let us go. Through the wide open door they enter a large hall which opens onto a lovely garden. The house seems to be divided by this kind of covered peristyle, which is full of pots with green plants, statues, and inlaid articles. It is a mixture of a hall and greenhouse. In a room, the door of which opens onto the hall, there are some women weeping. Jesus goes in confidently, but he does not pronounce his usual greeting. Among the men present there is a merchant who obviously knows Jesus, because as soon as he sees him he says, The Rabbi of Nazareth, and greets him respectfully. Joseph, what is the matter? Jesus asks. Master, a stab wound in his heart. He is dying. Why? A gray-haired, unkempt woman stands up. She was kneeling near the dying man, holding his limp hand, and with distracted face and voice she shouts, Because of her! Because of her! She has turned him into a devil! Mother, wife, children no longer existed for him! Hell will have you, Satan! Jesus looks up, and his eyes follow the trembling, accusing hand, and in a corner against the dark red wall he sees Mary of Magdala, more immodest than ever, wearing, I would say, nothing on 
half of her body because she is half naked from the waist upwards, draped in a kind of hexagonal net decorated with little round objects which look like tiny pearls. But as she is in half light, I cannot see her well. Jesus lowers his eyes once again. Mary, lashed by his indifference, stands up, whereas before she seemed somewhat depressed, and strikes a defiant pose. Woman, says Jesus to the mother, do not curse. Tell me, why was your son in this house? I told you, because she infatuated him, she did. Silence. So he was in sin, too, because he is an adulterer and an unworthy father of these innocent children. He therefore deserves his punishment. In this life and in the next, there is no mercy for those who do not repent. But I feel sorry for your grief and for these innocent children. Is your house far? About one hundred yards. Lift the man and take him there. It is not possible, master, says Joseph, the merchant. He is breathing his last. Do as I tell you. They place a board under the body of the dying man, and the procession slowly moves out. They cross the street and go into a shady garden. The women go on crying loudly. As soon as they enter the garden, Jesus addresses the mother. Can you forgive? If you forgive, God will forgive. We must be kind-hearted to obtain grace. He has sinned and will sin again. It would be better for him to die, because if he lives, he will fall into sin again, and he will have to answer also for his ingratitude to God who has saved him. But you and these innocent ones, and he points at the wife and children, would give yourselves up to despair. I have come to save, not to lose. Man, I tell you, stand up and be cured. The man begins to recover. He opens his eyes, sees his mother, wife, and children, and lowers his head shamefully. Son, son, says the mother, you were dead if he had not saved you. Come to your senses. Don't be infatuated for a... Jesus interrupts the old woman. Be quiet, woman. Have mercy, as mercy was granted to you. Your house has been sanctified by a miracle, which is always the evidence of God's presence. That is why I could not work it where there was sin. You, at least, must endeavor to keep it such, even if he will not. Take care of him now. It is fair that he should suffer a little. Be good, woman, and you and your little ones. Goodbye. Jesus has laid his hand on the heads of the two women and of the children. He then goes out, passing in front of the Magdalene, who followed the procession as far as the entrance of the house, where she remained, leaning against a tree. Jesus slackens his pace as if he were waiting for his disciples, but I think he does so to give Mary a chance of making a gesture, but she does not. The disciples reach Jesus, and Peter cannot help muttering between his teeth an epithet appropriate to Mary, who, wishing to strike an attitude, bursts into a laugh of weak triumph. But Jesus heard Peter's words and addresses him severely. Peter, I do not insult. Do not insult. Pray for sinners, nothing else. Mary stops her trilling laughter, lowers her head and runs away, like a gazelle towards her house. And the vision ends. My Way of Life by the Confraternity of the Precious Blood Chapter 8 Creatures Work in World Government 
God and his creatures. This is the divine, unalterable law that inferior things are led to God by the superior ones. These profound words of Dionysus give the basis of every creature's nobility and humility, stating with uncompromising exactness the place on the stage and the words to be spoken by every creature playing a part in the government of the universe. From these words it is plain that superiority is not a title to service, but a commission of serious responsibility. On the other hand, inferiority is not a relegation to labor that superiors might have ease, but a title to the superior's utmost help. The least are led to God by the greatest. Talent is not a mere personal favor, but a social responsibility. The universal law of creature participation in universal government finds its first and rigid application in the world of the angels. Holy Scripture names nine choirs of the heavenly spirits, ranging from the least of the angels to the greatest of the seraphim. The doctors and theologians of the church have grouped these nine choirs into three hierarchies on the basis of their offices and superlative gifts. In this vast world, whose numbers defy all our computation, the orderly subordination of lower to higher is without exception flawless. The help of the higher to the lower is without interruption. The higher angels have truth and love to give. The lower angels have truth and love to receive. Both the truth and the love are without limits, while the hunger for both, rather than being appeased, grows steadily keener, happily sharpened by the very richness of the diet and the eager devouring of the food. The angelic world could be seen as a great school, if it were possible for us to think in those terms, without the unpleasant memories of long labors and fragmentary results. The higher angel can, and does, share his greater knowledge with all his lesser fellows. The truth possessed by the superior angel runs down from the heights like a great river to every plot of the fertile minds of the lesser angels, a refreshing flow of living water fruitful, enriching, prodigal of its benefits. In that heavenly country, says Gregory, though there are some excellent gifts, yet nothing is held individually. In the words of Dionysius, each heavenly essence communicates to the inferior the gift derived from the superior. The open-handed sharing of knowledge in the angelic world is a model of the use of God's gifts urged upon Christians by St. Peter. As every man hath received grace, ministering the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. There are, in fact, none of the reasons among the angels that contribute to our own stinginess with truth, none of pride's blindness that gives an air of justification to snobbish disdain, none of jealousy's hoarding lest a rival surpass us. There is no fatigue in the teaching, no labor in the learning no impediments to knowledge, no interruption of the flow of truth. Here it is most perfectly true that the lower is brought to God by the higher. Yet the angelic communications are not all in one direction, with the lower angels having never a word to say. It is true that these lesser angels cannot teach the higher ones, but that the angelic world is set off sharply from the world of men. Among ourselves, until a man has learned to listen, he has no business teaching. 
until he realizes that every man has something of truth and wisdom to offer, he does not begin to learn. It is only when he sees how each of his fellows surpass him that a man begins to be wise to himself and to his fellow men. It is not so among the angels. The lesser angels have nothing to teach their superiors, but they do have gifts to give to those above them, personal things not to be had except by way of gift. The lower angel cannot teach, but he can and does talk, talks to the highest and the least of his fellows, even to God himself. He has much indeed to talk of. The width of the angelic world is no hindrance to the effectiveness of his least whisper. The crowded halls of heaven offer no impediment to the privacy of his speech. The superior angel's help in the matter of love is much more limited than in the matter of truth. Every intellect can be moved by truth, indeed must be moved by truth, but every heart is master of its loves. Only infinite goodness, plainly seen, can dictate to a created will, be it human or angelic. No one angel can move the will of another. One can give reasons for loving, yes, lovableness and its enticement can be shown most attractively, but that is as far as any creature can go in influencing the love of another. There are no degrees of freedom. The least of men and the highest of the angels are equally free in their embraces. In this matter of love, a creature, man, or angel can be helpful, kindly, persuasive, but we always stand in uncertainty, cap in hand, hoping for a gift that cannot be commanded or purchased. That part of the angelic world, which is the prison of the fallen angels, has its fundamental order of higher and lower devils intact. But the highest of the fallen is, by way of punishment, subject to and dominated by the least of the blessed angels. Hell's order is intact, but not its operation. No one in hell is going to God. Superior devils have no reason whatever to share their natural possession of truth with their inferiors. On the contrary, they are bitter, proud, envious, hating everyone and everything. Every one of them is totally against anything that remotely smacks of help or kindness. There is speech in hell, yes, but the words of that speech are a liar's words, not unlocking the gates of the heart, but as a usual thing, throwing up a wall against all communication. When, in the odd case, the truth is told, it opens a fetid heart to add the, to the horrors of hell. Angels have been badly treated by the men of our time. Where they have been given any consideration of it all, they have been locked off in a separate compartment somewhere apart from the world of reality in order that men might more easily forget about them and concentrate on the physical and tangible. But then the soul of man has received hardly less cavalier treatment, and for the same reason. In both cases, men have failed to remember that the angels are an integral part of the natural order. They cannot be excluded from that order without distorting the whole picture of nature. As natural, the angels have a part in the government of the universe that cannot be confined to the angelic world. In fact, by virtue of the universal law that decrees the superior's help to the inferior, the angels should have more to do in the government of the universe than any other creature in the world. It may well be that pagan philosophers like Plato and Aristotle 
proceeded from a deeper penetration of a profound truth rather than from mere ignorance of scientific laws when they saw the angels as movers and governors of the heavenly bodies. Surely it would be in harmony with the security of omnipotence and the generosity of infinite goodness that the power and wisdom of administration over the physical world be widely distributed among the subordinates to divinity. It is the perfect complement in action to angelic superiority over the physical world. At the same time, it is no detraction from the accuracy of scientific knowledge of sun and stars, of tides and winds, for administration by superiors does not imply destruction of inferiors, nor elimination of the inferior's own degree of self-sufficiency. The error is much more likely to be on the side of the moderns rather than on the side of the ancients, for it is our tendency, not theirs, to give every creature an independence approaching that of divinity. The angelic part in the government of the universe is not a justification, in fact, for the pleasant absurdities of a child's fairy tale. No angel has the power to change a man into a horse, a villain into a snake, a river into a mountain. Like ourselves, the angels can do nothing about the inner natures of things. The idea of administration of natural things does not involve the abolition of natural laws. Quite the contrary. In nature, it is only like that generates like. Angels do not generate anything. They cannot cause natural things to be, dispensing with natural causes. The wicked witch and the fairy godmother are fantastic creatures with purely imaginary powers, and, in fact, they are never summoned from the world of fantasy by the children for whom they were devised. It is only adults who make fantasy from facts and facts from fantasies. The angel's power to move bodies seems to border on this world of fantasy, but that is because we insist on thinking of angels in human terms. It is certainly true that the angel's power to move things suffers none of the limitations that experience has led us to expect when we see a man pushing at a car or tugging at a rope. Our souls are, like the angels, spiritual, but they are the vital principles of bodies. What a human soul does to the physical world is done by the physical energies of the body which is enlivened by that soul. Piano movers accomplish their tasks not by purely spiritual power, nor yet by purely animal power, but by human power, the intelligent use of physical strength. The angel is not limited to a body. It is not the vital principle of any body. Its power to move physical things is greater, more perfect, more unlimited than any power in the universe. The smooth sweep of such effortless power dazzles us. Perhaps there is a touch of envy in our readiness to disbelieve in its existence. There is evidence enough of this spiritual power in the tantrums of the devil tormenting such men as the cure of ours. There is no reason to doubt it beyond the fact that our imagination cannot give us a picture of an angelic piano mover. In our envious stubbornness, we might even settle for a contradiction and agree to see the piano as taking off on its own power rather than admit that such prodigious capacities in the creatures we like to relegate to the sweetly helpless delicacy of pious decorations. Staggering as that angelic power is in the physical world, it stops short of the miraculous. If an angel ever has a part in the performance of a miracle, that part is a purely instrumental one, 
played as humbly as the part of a brush in the hand of an artist. Miracles are gods. They are outside nature's order, and so are not to be accomplished by anyone who is himself a part of that natural order. Miracles are possible only to the one being who is outside of nature, the supernatural being who alone is the cause of all natural things. The angels can surprise and astonish us by wonders beyond our powers or outside our knowledge, but these wonders are not outside all natural powers, but the products of creatures, the angels, who are themselves a part of nature. The prodigies are real enough, as Augustine pointed out long ago, when fire came down from heaven and at one blow consumed Job's servants and sheep, when the storm struck down his house and with it his children, these were the works of Satan, not phantoms. Such works are wondrous to us, not because they are supernatural, but because they so far surpass our own powers. Indeed, as Augustine points out, the prodigies of the devil are really lying wonders, either because he will deceive men's senses by means of phantoms, so that he will not really do what he will seem to do, or because if he work real prodigies, they will lead those into falsehood who believe in him. This hoary procedure of Satan has been employed for so many centuries that it has become almost a rigid routine in winning his dupes. Startle them into a blind faith in him by showing them novelties beyond human power in order that, in that blindness, they might accept the poisonous evil he has prepared for them. Men invite this very catastrophe when they search for knowledge of the future from stars, Ouija boards, cards, tea leaves, palms, bumps on the head, or the self-induced darkness of the seance room. It is the element of reality behind the good luck charms, love potions, and voodoo curses. All these are invitations to the devil to exercise a power superior to that of the physical world. The special danger of this sort of thing becomes apparent when we remember the angel's wide field of effective action on men. Our bodies and all the physical avenues to our souls are wide open to the angels. Any effects on our sense that can be produced by any physical agent in the universe can also be produced by an angel from a black eye or a broken bone to the caress of spring winds or the steady murmur of the distant sea. There is no phantasm which cannot be produced by the angels in our imaginations, no depth of memory that cannot be easily and instantly dredged to give up the most deeply buried relic of our past. On this score of our senses, imagination, and memory, we have no defense against the invasion of the pure spirits, good or evil. That we suffer so little from the devils in this way and are helped so much by the good angels is the most constant testimony to the limitless mercy of God. And we will pause there.